Welcome back to the Knox Check-In. I'm your host, Dr. Jonah Rubin. Today on the podcast, we've got a really special interview that Ria Dahal and Carmen Benoit recorded with Michelle Gabriel. Michelle Gabriel is the Public Health Administrator and CEO for the Knox County Health Department. So that means that during normal times, she's responsible for coordinating a lot of the community health programs and initiatives at the county level. And that also means that for the past year, she's really been on the front lines of our local Galesburg response to the coronavirus pandemic, both at the level of helping to coordinate the response of the county to the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as right now helping to coordinate the rollout of the vaccine. I'm going to hear her talk a little bit about all of that, about her work before the pandemic and how the pandemic has changed her job and her life over the course of this podcast. So Ria, Carmen, take it away. Hey, welcome, Michelle. I am Ria. I'm a neuroscience major and currently I'm a senior. I'm Carmen. I'm a junior at Knox and I'm a psychology major. I am Michelle Gabriel. Um, I have an undergrad in business administration from Monmouth College, and I have a master's in public health from uh, University of Illinois, Chicago, the School of Medicine over in Peoria. That's kind of my background. I have been in public health at this health department only. I've been here since 2000, so um, almost 21 years. So um, for the people listening at home, I guess, um, could you like tell us a little bit more about what you do or a little, yeah, a little bit more specific about what you do? So uh, public health in Illinois focuses on, because it's a little different in every state. Um, in, Ill- in Illinois, you have county health departments and their primary focus is on what we call our local health protection grant, which includes food. Um, sewage, water, and communicable disease. So those are our core functions, we like to call them. So we have grants and we have staff that monitor, you know, those core functions of public health. This health department has always been focused on, you know, providing services that cannot be found elsewhere in the community. So we're not looking to take over something that somebody else, you know, can do just as well in the community. So primarily as administrator, I oversee all of those grants. Um, I work directly under a board of health, um, which works under the county board. Um, And I also have a governance board, um, which is over our community health center. So the other services we do at the health department is we also have a federally qualified health center um, that came about because of um, a lack of access in the community to, you know, primarily dental, um, primary health care, and later on behavioral health, so mental health and substance abuse services. So... Uh, So we do have a federally qualified health center and that's a federal grant to provide services. And basically that health center provides services to anybody from anywhere, regardless of ability to pay according to a sliding fee schedule. So I serve as the CEO for that health center as well. And there's a separate governance board that is in charge and works with our board of health to run that health center. Um, We also do WIC and family case management. 
Um, WIC is the Supplemental Food Program, um, which is a federal program. Uh, we do Illinois Breast and Cervical Cancer Program, which provides access to breast and cervical cancer services for um, men and women. And we also do a rather large program that's called LIHEAP. Um, that's a low income energy assistance program. I, I think a lot of people are familiar with it, but not everybody. That's a program that's unusual for health departments to do, but a community member, it, it wasn't being handled locally and some community partners came and asked us if we would administer the program um, because they wanted a local office. So we, we kind of respond in that aspect too and weigh those programs, although it may not be something we normally would do if we have community members who want the service done locally and we're able to do it, we may do it. So um, as administrator, I oversee all of that. Um, all of those programs have their own directors though. So I don't administer, I don't directly administer any program. I oversee the agency as a whole and report up to the boards. Also, part of my responsibilities lie with, you know, partnering with community members and in being out in the community and making sure I have relationships and partnerships in the community um, so they know what we do and so we know what they do. Uh, so there's not a duplication of services or so that, you know, referrals can occur and things of that nature. So just basically to be the face of public health in the community. That is a lot to cover. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, um, I'm curious to know how your responsibilities have shifted over the past year with the pandemic. That's, that's a good question. Um, so we still do everything we normally did. Um, and I have four very key staff who I, I have an HR director, a finance director, I have an assistant administrator and myself, and I also have an operations officer for the health center. So we've all picked up extra, op, extra duties, right? Because everything is just piled on. So uh, when the pandemic came out, um, they instituted what's called unified command. So that's when the community overall institutes like emergency preparedness activities to address the pandemic in the community. So I came in because it's a public health emergency. I step up as unified commander and then the, the EMA coordinator is my co-lead in that. Um, and that's just something that a public health administrator does if, if an emergency is a public health emergency. So we may have a role in a different type of emergency, um, like if there was a serious flood um, or something like that, but we wouldn't necessarily be the lead agency in that. So that happened, you know, around about March or April is when that happened. And it's been, so we're coming up on a year. Um, and it's, it's gotten a lot busier because what I've noticed with um, the COVID pandemic is we're getting layers of activities. So, you know, initially there was a lot of education and talking to people about what coronavirus was, how to protect themselves. Um, and then the testing came about, right? We moved into where testing was available and we test through our community health center so they still test three days a week. In the beginning, it was five. Um, 
so that layer came in there and then of course contact tracing um, came in and was being done really since March but we didn't step up an actual division probably till July or August so now we have an entire division that handles contact tracing and then now just recently in about since about the middle of December we've added vaccine so in some ways it feels like we're right back at the beginning again because it's like you hit that we hit that where we knew what we were doing we're, we're you know cooking with gas going on and then they threw in the vaccine and the vaccine is interesting because it's it's the whole world right it's not just the United States trying to get to this vaccine and get it out to its public it's the entire country it's the entire world and so it's hard to contemplate when and if it's that because they keep telling us well you know the supply will get better and it will break through like you know may or june or july hopefully more will be available but it's it's really hard to picture how that's going to happen because so many people want this vaccine and you know how is it being is it being distributed equitably across the globe right it, it, does everybody have access to it or does everybody who can afford it have access to it you know that type of thing so and that's something that we're conscious of in public health right that's equity is is very important clinics then again it, it's a whole nother thing and we know how to do mass clinics we do them quite a bit um we did them for h1m1 we used to do them a lot for influenza. Years ago, we were the only supplier of flu vaccine in the county. So when we would ramp up for flu, we would probably do 800 to 1,000 the first day. Um, so we, you know, we know how to do that. It's just how long this is going to take to get through this pandemic. It's, it's, it's fatigue, right? Eventually, I start to see my staff getting burned out and fatigue yeah and going off of this kind of I wonder um as you know you've been working in public health and I would call you an expert to be honest <laughs> um yeah. um what would you say um is like an aspect of our healthcare system slash public health that you think needs to change and I know it's like a loaded question because there's more than one aspect okay. but but everybody, most public health administrators have their soapbox. They do. We, we do. We all have our, our opinions. Um, I'm a very strong proponent in, in preventative care um, as part of public health. So I do believe in core public health, and I, and I do think it's very important. But I think if, if you're talking specifically about health care and things that could change in health care, I'm a big proponent of preventative care and um, preventing disease. Because like when we create our um, I plan, which is our comprehensive community health improvement plan. So we may identify something like obesity as a concern or heart disease, or years ago it was teen pregnancy. Um, ideally you would go as far back in the chain of causes as possible to you know, stop that from happening. And, you know, as a, as a nation, I think we're, our habits or our healthy habits need to improve, but we also know it's more than just me telling you, you need to exercise 
and eat better. And, you know, cause I'm a public health official and I struggle with it. So I know there's so much more to it. There's cultural aspects to it. Um, there's access to food sources. There's adequate access to adequate food sources, food deserts. Um, there's, you know, cultural aspects to poverty, but prevention to me, if we can find it and it really has to start with kids, right? Cause you almost have to go all the way back and, and get a generation to start over if that makes sense. And that's the tough part because you have to get that parent and that, and that child and try to get them to, to think, okay, this is what's important moving forward. Um, so that we can all have a better lifestyle and yeah. you can live, you, you live your healthiest life. I mean, you're, you're always going to have genetic things that happen and occur in families, but, um, I, I think things that we can prevent are very important. Definitely. And what would you say are some of the current challenges other than the pandemic going on? One of the larger challenges we're facing is um, mental health and substance abuse. Um, so this is the other side of the pandemic, right? Um, they, um, in public health, they teach you a lot about um, social determinants of health. So there's a lot of pieces to health, you know, your light, your, your work feeds into your health, your family feeds into your health, your community feeds into your health, everything feeds into um, a person's overall health. So I, I kind of view it as the other side of the treatment for this pandemic. So you start to wonder when you start seeing people become isolated um, and mental health concerns growing, suicides growing, substance use growing. And so I think right now, I think they need to be paying just as much attention to what's going on in the communities, I apologize, as they do um, kind of the vaccines, if that makes sense. Because I, I think we're going to be left with um, a lot to clean up afterwards, or a lot of hurt people, because, you know, even economics, so you'll, you'll hear... A lot of people, you know, the restaurants are a big story, right? Well, they're closing down the restaurants and it's hurting them economically and people are going to close. Well, that is, there is, there are ties to people's health for that, right? So that's some family's income. That's many employees' income. And there is a direct tie to their health. So if we're not addressing all the pieces of this pandemic, then when and if they get to the end of it, there's still going to be a lot of cure left to do because we're going to have some mental health concerns to deal with. So I would say that's probably right now one of our bigger concerns. And there's not a lot of resources, right? Um, I know you're studying psychology. Psych yeah. You know full well, you should be a psychiatrist because there's not enough of them. <laughs> I'll try, I'll try my hardest. And the National Health Service Corps will reimburse you for your college if you work in certain high need areas. I'll put, I'll plug that. Um, no, seriously, though, there's not enough mental health workers. Um, and I think then what I would call situational, situational mental health concerns kind of fall through the cracks. So, you know, somebody may be going through a divorce or some economic difficulty and 
it's those it's those midwell people who may need temporary mental health issues and they kind of fall through the cracks because there's just not a big enough supply of providers. What would you say is the accessibility for these mental health care? So like if someone doesn't have insurance or isn't aware, like what would you say is their accessibility for these services? Um, limited. Very limited, um, and it gets more limited the greater your disability, if that makes sense. So, um, for example, I have right now two behavioral health counselors in my federally qualified health center. So they will see anybody regardless of ability to pay. We have a community mental health center in Galesburg as well, Bridgeway. And I believe they see anybody. But it's very difficult to recruit staff. So, um if you need much more than a counselor, so if you actually requ require a psychiatrist or somebody of a higher level, it gets increasingly difficult to receive services, especially if you actually need to be admitted or you need residential care, you know, where you actually go to a hospital and you're admitted, you're looking at, you know, waiting lists and you're looking at going far up to the Quad Cities or further um, before you can receive care. So something that needs to be looked at um, and improved upon. Some people um, tie the, that lack of care to reimbursement rates. Like, like they don't, mental health doesn't have, doesn't receive the best reimbursement rates for insurance. So they kind of tie it to that. Yeah, unfortunately, mental health is like a kind of a low priority as, as far as um, health for when people take care of things, it's kind of like, it's like there was like dental care. It's like very low on the list for a lot of people. Well, they don't really include it as part of overall health, much like dental, they don't include it as it. And um, there's still a very large stigma. There's a huge stigma. Yeah. And um, going off of what you said before, so I'm from Portland, and um, which is a much bigger city than Galesburg. Um, and so going, going to Galesburg is like the first time I've truly like lived in such a small rural place like that. And so I was able to like really like notice the differences, like the differences in the way poverty looks first in like a big city versus like a rural city and the differences in like uh, um, accessibility and programs out there for people. Um, and so I don't know if you could like maybe talk about some of those differences and some of the things you've noticed. I don't know if you've ever worked in a different like city or different setting, but. Um, I've lived in different areas um, when I was a lot younger. So it's, it's been a while, um, but I do know rural how or rural areas have their, come with their own set of um, limitations. And it comes from, you know, some of it is distance to services. Um, we all like to think that everybody has a car and everybody has transportation or they have somebody, some way to get to something and, and not everybody does. I'm here to tell you. It's as surprising as it is, not everybody has a car. You know, not everybody has a friend with a car. Um, in fact, transportation is one of the concerns that we deal with in the health center. Um, and we offer like, cab rides and, and bus tokens and things like that but there's limitations to that as well um so i think transportation in rural areas is a is a big difference in services you know i also think there's there's limited dollars to services so while 
They may have some of the same resources that you have in a city like Seattle. There may not be as much available. So like you may have a pharmaceutical, you know, a pharmacy program where they have so many dollars to help people with prescription drugs um, and that's all they get for the year and they'll go through it in maybe four or five months where if you were in a larger city, they may have a bigger pool. Of course, you would also have more people to use that pool. So some people will say it washes, you know, it evens itself out. Um, but it, in rural areas also, it, there's a different, sometimes there's a different mindset, especially um, in areas like Knox County. You have a lot of farming, you have a lot of older, you know, it's an aging population. Um, so you deal with a lot of, you know, pride and unwillingness to access programs, if that makes sense. So just because you build a program and you can build the most wonderful program in the world and have the most money, but it does not necessarily mean that people are going to come and take advantage of your program, um, which is shocking to a lot of people, but there are a lot of barriers besides actually having the money or the staff to put together a program. Sometimes people um, just aren't willing to accept that they need the help or even come in and get the help. It's, that's one of the things that you know really struck me most when I came into public health is just because something is there, it does not in any way, shape or form mean that people will come to receive the service. There are, there are people who are just so proud or work so much they just can't access it. Yeah, what led you to go into public health? It was quite, it was quite a happy accident. I'll be honest with you. Um, I, like I said, my undergrad is in business administration. And when I started at the health department, I was the office manager and I fell in love with public health or the concept of it um, overall. And so that's, it led me to decide to go get my master's in public health so I could advance here at the health department. So and what I truly fell in love with is the idea that you could impact um, people's individual health kind of peripherally as in mass. So the idea that we could have programs that dealt with lead or food service or things like that, which actually impact everybody's health, but you're not really impacting every single individual in the county. You're just on an overall basis, making sure the health, the county's healthy. And that's what first led me to it is, is just that whole concept of helping people understand what truly makes them healthy. It was an accident, honestly. And then I stayed. So, and now it's been almost 21 years. So why leave? <laughs> I guess you could call it a happy accident. <laughs> it is a happy accident. It is. It's because you don't, um, I, you know, I, I would hope everybody can find something to do that they love. And I do love public health. And I will say, you know, it's been a truly trying time for a lot of us in public health and for public health administrators, um, especially there, you know, there is a lot of stress and there's a lot of stress with a lot of jobs. Um, but this is something truly that I never imagined I would ever have to do in my career, right? I had to issue quarantine and isolation orders, something I never thought I would have to do. 
Um, never thought I would have to, you know, ask communities to close things or, you know, isolate themselves or, you know, operate mass vaccination at this level where you're literally trying to, it's a brand new vaccine and you're trying to hit 80% so you have herd immunity. Um, it's truly something that none of us ever expected to do. After um, the pandemic hit and like things kind of started to like, rules started to come into motion, I guess. Um, was there anything that um, surprised you about working with the Knox community and like trying to integrate these new pandemic rules? It's a, ba it's a balance because I'm a, I am an appointed county official, so I'm not elected. I'm an appointed county official. So I rely on my elected officials to do, you know, what they're supposed to do. And basically I'm kind of a intermediary or a moderator or, you know, I kind of sit in the middle um, and really try to get them to just do their best public health, to take best public health actions. And in the very beginning, um, it was difficult because all of these executive orders were starting to roll out and um, I'm considered the, you know, public health officer for the community and all of this stuff is coming out and it's initially it was going quite simply, right? Because everybody thinks well, it's, it's only going to be a while. Let's shut down because in the beginning and do this. And then, you know, it gets going. And so then people start getting a little bit more abrasive about it. And no, I'm not going to shut down and, and that. And you have to, you really have to mediate what's important versus what's, you know, practical in your community. And as public health leaders, that's truly what we have to do in our own communities because every community is different is you have to find out what's going to work for your community. And, you know, I talked to a lot of my peers over this and, and really where we land is you have to work with your community. Um, and this health department has always had, a, has, has taken more of an education stance than a hammer stance, so to speak. We, we've always worked with the community to educate them, not bring down the hammer of, you know, restrictions and, you know, uh, closing people down. And it's, it's never been the role that this community or the authorities that are over me have wanted to take. So, and, you know, we, we only came into existence in 1992, so it's not really that old. So, you know, when orders were coming down and they're wanting us to kind of put the hammer down, it's like, that's, that's not what we do in our community. You know, we, we talk, we figure things out. And what we truly found is people wanted to do the best thing possible. You know, they, they may not have wanted to close completely, but if they didn't close, you know, they took every effort they could to stay open and protect their staff and keep people to work and keep their families fed and that so but that's it was difficult for me because you get pressure from both sides to um there's two very obvious sides to as i'm sure you know there's two very obvious sides to the, the coronavirus pandemic and standing in the middle of it is is very difficult so i just have to try to um educate and get both sides to just do, take the best public health actions they can to prevent, you know, any outbreaks or spread or anything like that.
that was probably you didn't ask me this, but that was probably the biggest surprise for me in, in the in the is how political the the pandemic got and how quickly it became political was probably one of the biggest surprises for me. I think everybody knows that. I don't I don't think that's information for anybody. I think everybody knows that it's it's very political. No, you're right though. So <laughs> it must have been so difficult adjusting to all the changes. And I'm also curious to like how federal policies might have affected what you were able to do, what you are able to do right now. So we're under state. So um, how it works is the state health department, the Illinois Department of Public Health, um, they will look to the CDC for guidance. Um, but our actual, I work as an agent of the state of Illinois. So I am, I am the local agent for the Illinois Department of Public Health. And I have to work under um, the guidelines that are in the communicable disease laws and the local health protection grant laws. Um, so federal laws, unless they have to do with my community health center, which is a whole different kind of ball of wax and there really wasn't anything there. So federal laws are, are generally out there but it pertains more to the state health department and they make determinations based on those federal laws and then they pass you know directives down to us so if for some reason i mean for a while there i think i don't think anybody was sure if the federal government was going to take control of the pandemic or if the state was going to so if it would have went the other direction I still think it would have been passed through the state and the state would have gave direction to us just because that's the way it's set up. This is a bit random and a bit off topic, um, but I've always wondered this, um, being that Knox College is in Galesburg, I've always wondered if um, like, that since the fact that Galesburg is technically a college town, does that like change anything when regarding like public health and like programs that you, might or may not have in the town or anything else like that i don't think it changes it a whole lot um just because knox i think knox college has done has always done a lot for its students on its own so to speak um and and they've always tried to take extra efforts to integrate students into the community um so as far as our programming um you know, we've done outreach on campus before, you know, with sexual health and things of that nature, um, especially before there was an actual student health center, but now you have a student health center. Um, we really inter interact with Knox just like we do any other entity in the community, but I don't think having the students around, so to speak, has ever really cause any significant issue that we've had to deal with <laughs> so i don't it's um it's just always been there as part of the community as a good as a knock student that's good to hear <laughs> good it is good what's the favorite part of your job for you um the people um so i don't i don't interact with a lot of people directly anymore I, so I more like just get to watch <laughs> or else I get the phone calls and people are upset. Um, but most of the time people are happy. Um, 
you can't ever make everybody happy and you never will, but it's, it's very rewarding to see people who truly need help with something receive help with something. It's just, it's, it's very rewarding and it's rewarding when they show gratitude. It just truly makes you feel good um, to see people helped, especially since a lot of our programs impact families and, you know, children don't choose to be in the situation they are in. Um, a lot of times people struggle in programs, you know, some of the programs we have, um, because sometimes people abuse programs. It, it just happens. It's just people like that out there. But for the most part, we just tell, you know, you have to focus on the children that are involved and they did not choose to be in this situation and you're helping the child and whatever is going on otherwise, you know, it's keep your focus on helping that child and um, just the gratitude you get when, when somebody has truly, truly feels like you touched their life is it's overwhelming. It's so it really is. I know that sounds corny, but it really is. So. Not at all, honestly, really. And I mean, like, truly, I hope you know that like the work you're doing is like amazing and it really does help more people than you will ever know. I know. And we, well, we hear that a lot anymore. And I, and I always pass it on to my staff. And I, I think right now they're kind of numb and they're just kind of just getting through it and doing everything. So I'm hoping that someday they actually feel the impact of what is happening. Cause it truly is a historic event they're participating in and they are doing amazing work because, um, you know, even moving forward, just the amount of clinics and the amount of vaccine that we're going to have to do over the next year is just, it's astounding and they'll do it and, you know, we'll get through it and move past it. And then I guess move on to the next problem. But, um, I'm curious to see how it turns out too. So we're always, you know, it's, you know, will it end up being an annual vaccine? Will there end up being boosters? You know, will it be more like the flu? You know, I don't think anybody's really sure where we're going to end up with at the end of this because it hasn't been that long. So I'm kind of curious to see how it ends when it ends because I'm not sure. Definitely. It's a question for us all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And one of the, one of the hardest things that, you know, throughout this too, and, and you didn't, um, I don't think you asked this, but I'm going to bring it up because it's, it's so important, um, is the difficult, we have so much trouble. Communication is so important in an event like this, like how we communicate with people, how do we reach everybody, you know, and now we're seeing it with vaccine. How do we make sure everybody knows when the clinics are? How do we get everybody signed up? And communication is so critical, but there's such a multi-generational aspect to this event that um, it's, it's really challenging. Um, and there have been a lot of, you know, demands for data and people want data and they want to know what's going on and they want to know, you know, how many people are being tested. They want to know what's out there. And so it's been a struggle for us to keep data flowing into the community um, until, so the state health department then, you know, finally got all their eggs in a row and puts a tremendous amount of data on their website compared to a lot of states. 
but now we're moving into vaccines. So I expect again to to see, you know, people wanting to know how many people are vaccinated, where are we at with vaccines? And it's been a struggle for us to, we have Facebook, we have Twitter, we have all of those means, we have people pushing them out. But the people you struggle to reach are like those people who maybe at one time read a newspaper or watch news at home or it's 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 interesting how all of that dynamic has changed and now it's really easy to push out simple messages via social media to hit people where that used to be the difficult one to do right but now it's it's harder to reach the older school people who want their information a different way and it's so important but it's it's been so difficult yeah I never really thought about that but now that you bring it up it really does like I never thought about how important it is for people to have information about what's going on and like I mean people have grandparents like I never thought about the fact that my grandma does not use Twitter so yeah yeah we were putting information out we were because everybody is registering people electronically for vaccines. So yeah, we even moved to it because it's the time savings and, you know, we only have so many staff. So then we're encouraging, you know, young people or anybody, neighbors, if you have a neighbor, if you have a grandparent, you know, help them get online and get registered for a vaccine, you know, and help them do that. So, but there's just, it's, it's almost a whole topic of itself. Um, in an event like this, how do you actually reach the entire gamut of people that we have to reach um, versus normally in the marketing, you're worried about targeting a specific population, right? But here it's just everybody. And it's been hard. Yeah. I am curious also about like the numbers of staff you have with COVID going on. Like, you know, when people get COVID, they get off duty. So that puts the strain on the numbers already there and also just going off with mental health and if there's any program established for the staff who are working in healthcare right now. We work in government. So there's, um, and I'm serious about this. I, I kind of laugh about it, but I'm, I am serious about it. So at government level, um, it's not as easy to use funds to do things for your staff. Okay, so you're, you're kind of held to a different standard because of the transparency and because for years, you know, for years, you know, grants probably were abused and people probably did spend money on things they weren't supposed to. Um, so that's probably where we're at. But it's very difficult for us to um, do things um, with any monetary value attached to them to actually thank a staff. So, like, we have to get creative and. Um, so like one thing we normally do that crashed and burned this year is like three times a year, we'll have the division heads will cook a meal for everybody. So we all bring in food and we cook a meal for them. Well, now, you know, we couldn't all be in the same room and, and share the meal. So that kind of went out the window, um, this year. Um, but really what we're doing is just basically keeping an eye on each other and we do have mental health staff available that do I know they've had conversations with staff um or checked in on them and said hey are you okay and I know I've had them even look at me and go hey you know you really need to take care of yourself you're not you're not looking the best anymore yeah (laughs) 
and I, and I don't mean it in a bad way. They're just like, you're, you're looking really tired lately. So are you okay? Um, and making sure that they're not working too much. This is, and this is a difficult because you, you have people who are truly dedicated. So they want to do everything they can. And you literally, some people you have to be like, you need to go home. You need to stop. Um, you cannot do everything. And we still have 11 months of this. So you need to stop and go home. And it's, it's literally taking people aside and saying, understand, you know, it's, we appreciate you. We appreciate what you're doing, but you do need to take time for yourself too and not live here. So, but I wish we could do more. I do. And that's the struggle of government. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that was even the thing, but I guess that does make sense now. Yeah. yeah. Government requires a lot of transparency. This summer I worked with, I worked for my city government and I had no idea all the things that, uh, go on behind the scenes so definitely learned a lot like a private company can buy everybody a christmas gift or they can you know always just pay well we'll just or bump up wages to compensate them because they're working you know so many more hours because i have a lot of salaried staff so they don't get overtime um so that's a struggle for me because it is what it is that's a salaried job um so it's, it is a struggle for us and it's something we constantly do. And my HR director works with, they do have like a employee committee that puts together fun stuff and they do fun stuff every month based on whatever, like February, there's Valentine's day stuff, there's heart health stuff month and they just do fun things or they'll decorate doors um, or have contests. Sometimes we've done food drives and things like that. So. They do come up with a lot of fun things to do, um, but it, it is a struggle when you would really like to recognize people and you're not able to. One more question. And going back to the vaccination, how do you see it being planned out in our county? So how it works is um, the state health department receives an allocation for the state of Illinois from the CDC, so the Centers for Disease Control. So once a week, they'll tell Illinois, this is how much vaccine you get for this week. And they do it across the country, I assume. So then the state health department takes that and they have programs, like there's a program in place right now. They're visiting all of the long-term care facilities at least three times to vaccinate. That's a great program. We're happy they do it. That vaccine comes off the top. Um, there's other programs. And then eventually they give us allocations um, in the county. So it comes to me as the local health department administrator. They'll say, you're getting 600 doses this week. And they're small numbers like that. They're very small. Um, for the next few weeks, I think we're getting just a couple hundred doses a week. So they're, they're small. Um, and then I partner with both hospitals and we have what I call a mass vaccination work group. And we discuss the vaccine. What are we going to do with it? So it was that group that determined we're going to start with 65 and older. That's all we're going to vaccinate for a month, you know, until we get them. It was that group that decided that. And it's that group that decides how we're going to kind of redistribute that vaccine. Um, and then, of course, 
there's pharmacies with vaccine too. So both hives have vaccine and that's, they get that vaccine from the state and both Walgreens have vaccine and they get theirs from the federal government. So those are other streams coming into the community. Um, what's supposed to happen eventually is at some point it should stop all coming through me. And once there's enough vaccine, everybody should be able to order the vaccine. I don't see that happening for a long time. I think they'll be funneling it through the health department for some time. How I hope it happens eventually is we are, we are looking to move to a larger site to have a mass vaccination site that we can push a lot of people through at one time. So, um, and that would allow us, because you still have to social distance, you still have to mask, all of those are still in place, right? Um, so it has to be a big place. There has to be enough room for parking. It's, and there's just not a lot of places in Galesburg. So eventually I'm hoping that we receive enough vaccine that we can do larger clinics where our partners can work with us and we can do, you know, one day a week, do first dose clinics and then one day a week do second dose clinics because that's the big thing is that second dose clinic. Um, second doses are very important. It's where you receive, you know, the rest of your immunity. You're really only at about 50% until you get that second dose. And right now they're telling us November, December, but I'm starting to wonder if maybe it'll go a little beyond that. I really am. Yeah, it has been a conversation for me and my friends. Like, are college students ever going to be vaccinated? So, Yeah, it's 1B is a very large group. Um, and really, after 1B, I look at the rest and I'm like, really, it's just everybody after that. I'm like, just open it up after that. And, and I'm hoping by that time we do actually have vaccine, just we can just open it up. You know, I, I think more of the different kinds of vaccine are going to have to come out before that happens. Um, and of course, you have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is, is in review for its emergency use order. And that is a one shot. Um, of course, it's only 70% effective, but you know, you could use that for populations who maybe don't get as sick from it, you know, like younger people and, you know, something like that. And it's a little bit more of a normal type vaccine. It's not the myRNA vaccine. So I think some people will be a little more comfortable with Johnson and Johnson and taking that vaccine. But I think it's gonna play out slowly and it's continue. It's going to continue to play out slowly. Uh, I just don't. You know, you're talking about very few manufacturers that are making vaccine for an entire world. So it's it's going to go slowly. But I think what we will see. I think we'll see more treatments. So I know there was one manufacturer whose vaccine. I, I believe it failed. But then they switched off, and now they're making. I think a couple of treatments for. Um, COVID-19. So I think, and I hope we start seeing more treatments as well, because I think that would be a nice companion piece to it. If, if the vaccine is going to take a long time to come out, well, if we had more treatments to keep people from getting really sick, that would be a nice complement to it. Because I don't know when it's going to end. I'll be honest with you. I have no idea when it's going to end. And our information, so most of the time we're on information overload. It changes every, almost daily sometimes. 
So the only thing that's constant is that it changes. And um, we, what we, we talk to the state health department. We have meetings like this. We do Zoom meetings probably three or four times a week, sometimes more. You know, we meet specifically about schools. Sometimes well, some of them are specifically about vaccine. Some of them are specifically about long-term care. So some, most days we're on information overload, but I think it's all a wait and see. But it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time to be in public health, but it's an, it's an exhausting time to be in public health. Well, uh, I think that's all the questions we have. I think. Okay. <laughs> but thank yeah. you so much for talking with us. Oh. It was I learned so much. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. And that's all we have time for today on the Knox Check-In. A huge thank you once again to Michelle Gabriel for taking time out of her super busy schedule right now coordinating the vaccine rollout to talk with us about her experiences, as well as to Rhea and to Carmen for doing this interview. Today's episode was produced by me with music from Kevin McLeod. On behalf of the Knox College Health Studies Program, this is Dr. Jonah Rubin, checking out.